now from the Afghan village to a place in Colombia um, in order to talk about Valmont Jacobs' peace spoilers in the context of the um, peace talks right now in the country. So this is the place. No, this is not the place. This is the, can you see it? Or is it too little? Yeah. So this is the place that I visited um, in January, Mahayura. It's at the border between Colombia and Venezuela. And what happened in this place was in 2012, um, there was a major attack by the Colombian rebel groups, the FARC. They were on the Venezuelan side of the border and left about 100 soldiers crossed the border, attacked the Colombian military, and this resulted in this battlefield that you can still see um, in the picture from 2016. They killed about 12 soldiers, um, some more were injured, and then they just went back again to the Venezuelan side and escaped. When I was there in 2016, there was no violence. There weren't any violent clashes, but you could still see the battlefield, and there was still presence of um, the rebels. The park was still present, the BLM were present there as well. But there was a kind of tension without the actual violence. On the Venezuelan side, this year, um, this is where the, the violence occurred. There was um, there were torture, kidnapping, um, attacks, but not on the Colombian side. So what does it mean then um, to think about the concept of war and peace? Well, first of all, it means that in a way it was flipped around. I was on the conflict side, but it was more peaceful, whereas while I was on the non-conflict side, um, it was the other way around. Why are they still there? Because these areas are crucial for um, the drug trade. They are corridors um, of the drug um, routes that go from Colombia towards the, the Caribbean um, to the US, um, but also <coughs> towards West Africa and then Europe. So what happens there is there are many different groups, on the one hand criminal groups, on the other hand rebel groups, but also parliamentary groups, and they are all interacting with each other in order to uh, take advantage of those corridors. Now I would like to talk about what this means for the peace process right now. The FARC um, is in peace talks with the Colombian government, and they're about, they might be about to sign um, the peace agreement. They were supposed to sign the um, first agreement on the 23rd of March, which did, didn't happen, but the rumors are that this will still take place this year. And the ELN, the second largest um, rebel group in Colombia, they've also announced now on the 30th of March that they will start the official peace talks with the government. So it looks like things will change quite a lot in Colombia, which is why it's important that we think about what happens afterwards, what is important for the post-conflict strategy. So just to give an idea of all the many different groups that are involved. The first ones, the FARC and the ELN, these are the ones that are currently in peace talks with the government. But there are many other groups as well. And as you can see here on that map, I tried to kind of map out where the different groups are present. And these are drug trafficking groups, these are criminal groups, and they overlap in the same territory. So what does it mean when they overlap? Well, it means that they have to interact with each other in certain ways, and that they have to have certain arrangements, agreements, um, in terms of how they control the territory, and also how they relate to the local population. So what I've done is I've tried to identify what are the different kinds of interactions that exist between those groups and what does it mean for the civilian population on the ground. What does it mean to live in such a territory where we see many different um, actors present. 
you don't have to look at all those different numbers. So the numbers are on the map, and they're here reflected in the list. And that ranges from an absence of an arrangement where you have violent clashes um, between different groups um, over tactical alliances, subcontractual relationships, to the more long-term relations, which are, for example, strategic alliances, or then also preponderance relations, which is where one group dominates all the other ones. But what I would like to focus on today is um, what does it mean if we look at the larger, the broader patterns so that we can understand what we could do in the post-conflict or in the post-agreement period in order to address those different impacts on security. So when we cluster them and try to think of violent clashes between groups, the short-term arrangements, which are quickly changing, shifting, fragile alliances, and then finally the long-term arrangements, we see that there are different patterns of security. When there's no arrangement, usually what we see the outcome is violence. And this is what most analysts focus on. We count homicide rates, we count displacements in order to show where is violence. But there are also other um, impacts, which is selective violence and uncertainty, and what I call shadow citizen security and shadow citizenship. And I'm going to explain that um, with a few examples in order to then come back what this means for the post-conflict. So if we think about the absence of an arrangement when there are clashes between different groups, usually we think about that in terms of um, government side and then those who are opposed to the government, the enemy and, and the state. But in fact, what we see in Colombia is that there are also clashes between different rebel groups. And this is an example here from Arauca, which is in the south of Colombia, the border with Venezuela where between 2006 and 2010, there was a major guerrilla war. This was the war between the two guerrilla groups that are now in peace talks, or that are about to start, hopefully, peace talks with the government, the ELM and the FARC. And what you can see here is that clearly between 2006 and 2010, um, the displacement goes up, the homicide goes up. So you see how violence increased during that period. And this was exactly when the two rebel groups um, fought each other. Now this will be important, I will come back to that point, for what we can do in that specific region in the country once there is peace agreement between both groups. In the second cluster, in short-term arrangements, it's not that clear-cut. If we look at statistics, we don't really see those high rates of violence. But what we see here is a more kind of selective violence. <clears throat> and to give you an example on that, I'd like to focus on the city of Tumaco, which is at the border between Colombia and Ecuador at the Pacific coast. Tumaco is very important because it's a major strategic point on the trafficking route of the cocaine supply chain. As you can see here with the arrows, it's not only the place where all the drug flows go to, it's also the place where the gasoline flows to, and it's the starting point then for cocaine to be shipped um, via, via Central America to the United States. So if you are one of those groups, you probably would like to have control of Tumaco because it means it gives you access to this entry point, to the starting point, and it means that you can get a share of the benefits of the traffic. So in this area here, this is where coca is cultivated, and then processed into cocaine. They will need the precursors to process coca leaves into cocaine and they come from Ecuador. They will probably also need the arms um, that come usually from Peru via Ecuador in order to then 
um, be introduced to Colombia. And then this is often exchanged with the drugs that flow out of Colombia. So tobacco is really strategic, in a way, for all those groups. On the one hand, for criminals and drug cartels, the Mexican cartels are apparently present there as well, but then also for the rebel groups, for the conflict actors, because they need the traffic to sustain their fighting as an income source. This is why all the, the financing fronts of the FARC, for example, are located in those border areas that are also the starting points of those trafficking groups. So if we zoom in now on Tumaco, you see that Tumaco is made of three <coughs> islands. Now because there are so many different groups, there's a constant struggle over control. But at the same time, this struggle also means that there are constantly groups that ally with each other. They try to, to share or to cooperate in certain steps in the trafficking route in order to increase their benefits. So for example, if one group wants to move the drug from this part of the city towards the other part, they probably have to collaborate with the group that is controlling the bridge in order to get there. If another group wants to stop the cocaine in the harbor in order to then ship it away, they probably have to cooperate with someone there. But these cooperations are very short-lived. They're very fragile. They're often only based on, on personal bonds between the leaders. They're based on economic interests. So why we will cooperate is really about increasing the benefits. And that means that it's very unstable. For the local population, it means that often people don't really know who's imposing the rules. In the absence of an arrangement, at least you often know where are the frontmen, who's on whose side, and who's in control of what. But in this context, it's constantly changing. It's shifting all the time, which means that for the local population, there's a lot of uncertainty. People are involved as well. People are contracted as contract killers. They are used as messengers to bring messages from one group to the other group. And they're also used to gather intelligence. So civilians are used as informants, for example, as taxi drivers, they circle around the city, and this is the way in which they explain what's going on, and this is the way in which they find out who is entering the city, who's leaving the city. So there's a constant growing not only of who's a combatant and who's a civilian, but also who's on whose side and for how long. So in a way, it's even more than Mary Carter's um, new wars where you have this growing, it also is about the, the, the temporal dimension, where you don't know for how long this will actually last. And this then creates the uncertainty, which means that even though there's not as much violence as we see in the case of violent clashes, it means that it erodes the social fabric of the society because of the constant mistrust that people have to each other. They wouldn't talk to each other, they wouldn't stay in public places, because otherwise you don't really know who's watching you and who's involved and who's not. Then the final cluster is the long-term arrangements. And this is really um, where groups have a stable relationship with each other. We don't necessarily see violence. What we see here is the firm control of those groups over a certain territory, but then also over the population that lives in that territory. And that then leads to what I call shadow citizen security or shadow citizenship. What do I mean by that? I mean that there is some kind of social contract, not between the state and the society, but actually between those non-state actors and the local community. So on the one hand, the non-state actors are the ones who provide services, who provide governance functions, but then on the other hand, communities, they respect them, 
and it's often a fine line between respect and fear, but they will also just accept that these are the rules that are imposed. And that's often a pragmatic solution. It's not for ideological reasons, it's simply a way of surviving, a way of sustaining livelihoods that just fitting within those contexts and just complying with those rules. Here's just an example of one of the interviewees um, that I talked to when I was there. He said, when two neighbors have a dispute, they don't say, I'll call the police. They say, I'll call the guerrillas, or I'll call the paramilitaries. This is how people threaten each other. So the ones who provide conflict resolution mechanisms or justice mechanisms is not the police or the state authorities. It's those actors like the guerrillas or the paramilitaries because they are considered to be more efficient or more effective than the state, even though obviously that doesn't normally happen um, with democratic means. But then the question really is, what are people used to? If they are used to these kind of um, mechanisms for conflict resolution, then for them, this is just the way things are, and it just fits into their worldview of how conflicts can be um, solved more quickly and more efficiently. It also means <clears throat> that we often don't really know what's going on. This is a map that shows the displacement rates in the south of Colombia, in the department of Narito. And when you look at maps like this, you would think that one well, of the green areas, this is where the mass displacements take place. So in a way, the black areas, these are probably the regions that are not that much affected by the conflict, uh, because we see less violence. Maybe here, things are more peaceful. However, if we actually try to find out what's going on there, we know that these are the areas where we actually see confinement. Now, this is in 2010 and 2011, so things have changed by now. But at that time, there were no displacements because people were not allowed to leave the territory. People were not allowed to talk about human rights violations. They knew that if they would say something to international organizations, to UNHCR, to other humanitarian organizations, they would be punished by those actors who control the territory. So these areas are very much affected by the conflict. The only thing is that we don't see it because we don't hear the voices, they're not allowed to speak out, and we don't see the statistics because homicide rates are kept low, because displacement rates are kept low, so that everything, all the information stays within that territory. How am I doing? Now this is consequences for what we can actually do as a state about this, or, and also what it means for the post-conflict period. First of all, in those areas, states have lost their perceived legitimacy, and the population is alienated by the state. They are affected, but no one cares about that. No one knows what's going on. So in a way, they're closer from, towards the non-state actors than the state. As a second point, these regions are particularly useful for the illicit economy as an income source, both for the conflict, but also for criminals. No one really knows what's going on in those areas, so it's very easy to actually use the benefits of the illicit economy and also draw on the support of the local population as a labor force, as people who are involved in that, because for them, the illicit economy provides more opportunities than the illicit economy, which is often not incentivized by the state. And then finally, those regions also constitute safe havens for terrorists and criminals. These are often areas, because we don't have the attention of the state or the international communities, that are then used to reorganize, um, to train troops, and also in other parts of the world, 
um, to stage or to plan attacks on other parts. So what does it mean that for the post, I call it post-agreement period in Colombia, and I call it post-agreement period rather than post-conflict period, because it will be the agreement with the FARC and the ELN, but that doesn't mean um, that there's no conflict anymore. The first point is that we need to identify the arrangements among bilateral groups in order to account for various security dynamics. And this is particularly important if we think about the two processes that are or will be happening soon with the FARC and the ELN. I showed you the slide on um, Arauca, where we saw that there was this guerrilla war um, between 2006 and 2010. Now, when we think about the peace processes right now, one scenario is that FARC will sign peace first, but the ELN is still um, in negotiation. Now, what does it mean for that territory? In that territory right now, ELN has more control than the FARC. If the FARC is granted some kind of demobilization process, if they will have a concentration zone, which is the zone that they will call those areas where they will demobilize. If this will be <coughs> Arauca, then probably this will be a reason for the ELN to mistrust those demobilized um, FARC members. Because there was this war, we know that there's still a lot of mistrust between the two groups. And when I talk to people in Germany, people were telling me, well, we don't really know what would happen when the FARC demobilize and then the ELN comes in because they used to have this guerrilla war there. It's not that because they are both rebel groups they would trust each other and they would collaborate. So it's not clear whether this would lead to an upsurge of violence or whether it actually would result in peace. So we have to know that they have to have that they had this war before in order to understand what happens in the um, in the peace um, period. And the second point is that in regions where conflict and crime converge, post-conflict periods or post-agreement periods are likely to feature a reshuffling of arrangements rather than the disappearance. And what I mean here is that there are often also third parties that might um, fill the power vacuum. So if there's peace with FARC and ELN, we know that there are many parliamentary groups. Just a few weeks ago, the Gravenius, um, one of the major right-wing neo-parliamentary groups, um, they showed a lot of presence and control in, in many parts of Colombia. So if one group demobilizes, it doesn't necessarily mean that there's peace, because those vacuums can be filled by other groups. And we have to think about those different arrangements to understand how those arrangements were simply substituted and just recreated in a different constellation rather than disappear. And then finally, we need to complement the attention to ungoverned spaces with a focus on the illicitly governed spaces to build sustainable peace. And here I'd like to bring you back to Mahayura, the place that I showed at the beginning, which is one of these kind of illicitly governed spaces because there is social control by those actors. And it's not the kind of area that we usually focus on because we don't see the violence. Now, what does it mean here? It means that rather than having those violence as spoilers, we have to think about how we can actually collaborate with them, how we can bring them on board and make sure that those opportunities that are right now provided in the illicit economy can be moved towards the illicit economy, for example, through um, illicit cross-border activities, um, illicit trade, rather than the tractor that's um, present there right now. Thank you.